0: When my grandma was 19 years old, she was in secretary school in Nova Scotia. When one day she feared that she wasn't saved. And so she went to the local Presbyterian minister and he told her to go home and read the book of Romans. So she did. And then she surrendered her life to Christ. Jesus saves, you know, watching Bill's tragic and Glorious story reminds us, Jesus saves. What is salvation? What does it mean to be saved? You know, I could take a poll of our congregation and I'd probably get a number of answers. Some of you might say, well, it's being born again. Others might say, well, it's justification by grace, through faith. Others of you might answer, it's being adopted into God's family. And all of those are true. Well, they're they're sort of partially true of the fuller picture. So from from today till Easter Sunday, here's what we're going to do. We're doing a sermon series in the book of Romans called Jesus Saves on what is sometimes referred to as the order of salvation. The order of salvation is the sequence of conceptual steps involved in the salvation of a Christian the sequence is meant to be logical instead of chronological, meaning some steps occur sequentially, while others occur instantaneously, all at the same time. It starts with election, which is proclaiming, uh, which is God's choice of people to be saved, sometimes referred to as prevenient grace. Then comes gospel call, which we will focus on next week, which is proclaiming the message of the gospel. It's convicting grace. Then comes regeneration, it's being born again, it's the grace of rebirth. Then comes conversion, which is our response of faith and repentance. Justification means right legal standing with God. Adoption is membership into God's family. Sanctification is right conduct of life, known as growth in grace. Perseverance is remaining in Christ, being kept by grace. Death even has a place in salvation because it is in our death that we go to be with the Lord in an instant. We will look at that on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday. We will look at glorification when God finally removes all traces of sin from every Christian and gives us resurrection bodies like Jesus. My prayer is that as our church's knowledge of salvation grows, so too will our passion for it and experience of it in our midst, that we will grow in our appreciation for the beauty and wonder of salvation, and we will see more people come to Christ. That is my prayer. And we're going to start this series with a bang because of the topic of election, is the most challenging doctrine of them all. So, so buckle up. Here's where we're gonna go with our time together. First, we're gonna establish some ground rules. Always important when you're talking about some contentious issues. Second, we're gonna explore common questions the doctrine of election raises. And third, we will examine and apply the text. My alliteration engine is working. Here we go. Here's the first one, establish Some ground rules, right? When addressing a contentious topic, it's important to provide these, a a framework of understanding for what we're doing. This is one of those conversations that can get pretty heated. Maybe you have participated in these. So, So I think some preliminary comments will help guide our time and how we should engage this subject. Here's the first ground rule. I want you to recognize that election is a Bible word. So so no Christian should say, oh, no, no, I don't believe in election. It's in the Bible, election and predestination, which is like election, but it is a broader term than election. But election and predestination, these are Bible words. They're in Scripture. The debate and disagreement stems from what we believe the the word means. And I, this may be a little overly simplistic, but just generally speaking, there are two main views, and essentially, here's what they are. One is that the view that God directs. It's the view that a Christian is saved not because of anything intrinsically good or special about them, but God chooses based purely on his will. The other primary view is that God responds. The God responds view is that before God created the world, he could foresee that you would choose him. And so in this view, his election of you is based on the response he could foresee in you. So again, at the risk of being too overly simplistic, we are saved by God's choice, God directs or our choice and God responds. So A question I want you to have in your mind as we look at Ephesians 1 and Romans 9 in a few minutes is, which view makes the most sense in light of the passages of Scripture? Second ground rule, genuine Christians disagree on election. We we need to be clear about this. this. This doctrine has given thoughtful believers problems for centuries and continues to. There are spirit-filled, fruit-producing, genuine followers of Jesus who disagree on election. There are even central staff who disagree on election. And occasionally, when the opportunity arises, I like to tell them how wrong they are. But, but we enjoy each other and can exist on a team and differ on this, which leads naturally to the ground, next ground rule. We can disagree on election and be church family. If our staff can disagree and be family, our church can do the same. We don't have to split and faction over this. Bit of a, a sad story. A um, number of years ago now, I had the privilege of baptizing a man. And I, it, was, it was really special because his family were in the front row. His, his children were teenagers or approaching teen years. And just watching their dad take this step of faith, as I was baptizing him, I could see tears in his wife's eyes. And it was just a really powerful moment. He was setting such a good example for his kids. It was beautiful. And then a few weeks later, I noticed that they hadn't been attending for a while. And so I reached out to him to connect, see what was going on. We ended up going for lunch, and I I eventually asked him, like, hey, I haven't seen you, what's going on? And he said that something I mentioned in a sermon weeks earlier, months earlier at this point, raised alarm bells for him because it sounded an awful lot like election. He said, he looked me in the eyes, he said, I don't believe in election, I believe in free will. So my wife and I talked and we agreed that we can't come to Central anymore. Look, th- what I'm saying is that doesn't need to happen. Uh, we, we can disagree on this, and we can continue to study the word of God together and land. You know, I remember the exact passage that he was, John chapter six, where, where the, the verse says, Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the father draws him. And so I preached that. We can disagree and still be family. Fourth, nonetheless, This still matters. So inevitably, I'm assuming at this point, some of you are thinking, well, if all of this is the case, if it can be divisive and genuine Christians believe differently on this, what's the point of even talking about it then, right? My answer, it matters because knowing God rightly matters. Just because parts of the Bible are contentious or inevitably lead to more questions doesn't mean they're unimportant. This, there, there's this, some, some, sometimes there's this kind of anti-intellectual, anti-learning branch of the church that, that misinterpret what 1 Corinthians 1 says when it talks about the foolishness of the gospel. They misinterpret that to mean kind of anti-intellectualism as a good thing. And I think the misstep they make is that to be anti-theology is really to be anti-relationship with God. See, he makes himself known in his word and to reject growing in your knowledge of God is like marrying a spouse and then, and then showing zero interest in learning more about them. Every great marriage and relationship in general for that matter is built on a deepening bond through knowing and being known. We are to know the God who reveals himself in the Bible and seek to live our lives accordingly. What's more dangerous, in my estimation, than broaching the difficult text of Scripture? What's more dangerous is tiptoeing around the Bible, avoiding passages we don't like or understand. So it still matters. And it's worthy of dipping our toe into the pool of discomfort. Here we go. Fifth To study the doctrine of election will inevitably lead to more questions. I assure you of this. And that's okay. The Bible speaks to those questions as well. And I really think the context of walking with God, seeking to know him more in the study of his word, and having a community of fellow believers to gain insights and wisdom from, to sharpen each other, this is the perfect place to do that. So we're going to broach a subject that will inevitably lead to more questions and that's okay. Process them and walk through it. Okay, let's set that aside or we've got that groundwork done. Now let's move on and explore common questions the doctrine of election raises. Here's the first. Doesn't the doctrine of election undermine evangelism? Right, This idea that, that God will certainly save his elect. So telling people about Jesus doesn't matter. That's kind of the logic that sometimes gets followed when talking about the doctrine of election. Right? If everything is fixed and certain, why pray, evangelize, do anything at all? If God is going to save who he's going to save, doesn't that kill mission? It's a common question. Here's the second one. Doesn't the doctrine of election undermine humility? Now, no one would really say this, but underneath there might be this sense like we're superior because we're the chosen ones, right? If some people were chosen to be saved and others weren't, doesn't that lead to pride? Third common question, doesn't the doctrine of election undermine holiness, right? This idea we don't need to strive to please God because once saved, always saved. Doesn't election lead those who are saved to live however they want? These are common questions. And now we're going to examine and apply the text. I'm gonna read to you Ephesians chapter one. And wonderfully, I I believe this text actually speaks to each one of those questions, okay? So here's Ephesians chapter one, and I'm gonna read verses three to six. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is Jesus. What Paul is saying here is that God is to be blessed. Literally, he's to be praised. God is to be praised, Paul is saying, because of his great grace that provides believers in Jesus incredible spiritual blessings. The spiritual blessings he's talking about are everything Christians receive from God through Christ. Because our spiritual blessings are in Christ, they're also in the heavenly places where Jesus is ruling and reigning at this very moment. Then over the course of the next 11 verses, Paul mentions four spiritual blessings he has in mind as he talks about the spiritual blessings we are to praise God for, and he lists them. In verses 3 to 6, he says, he chose us. We should praise him for that. In verses seven to 10, he says he redeems us. We should praise him for that. In verses 11 and 12, he says he gives us an inheritance and we should praise him for that. And in verses 13 and 14, he says he seals us with his spirit and we should praise him for that. Here's the reality we're left with. Paul is summoning the church to praise God for a number of reasons. The first and foundational reason being this. Praise God because he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Here's what I believe this text is telling us about the doctrine of election. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Therefore, because that is true, Paul is saying, We should praise him. Now, we already addressed this question that since the doctrine of election is so contentious, why bother talking about it? Don't we run the risk of being divisive? Wouldn't it be wiser, even perhaps more godly of us, to avoid it entirely? And we said, no, it's still important because knowing God rightly is important. The Apostle Paul takes it a step further here and says, Far from being something to avoid, it is a primary reason to praise God. Paul is saying, praise God because he chose you before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined you for adoption. We explored three common questions the doctrine of election raises. Doesn't the doctrine of election undermine evangelism, humility, and holiness? And this text addresses all three. So let's look at the first. It addresses evangelism when Paul writes, he chose us in him, in Christ. He chose us in Christ. And how do sinners come to Christ? Well, verse 13 actually tells us, and we know this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... It's through the preaching of the gospel that God calls his elect to salvation. Hear this. The Bible is clear here in other places. God uses our evangelism to save his elect. Acts 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, heard what? Heard that the good news of Jesus Christ was for them also. And it had been spoken to them through Paul and Barnabas who went to to preach to them, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Listen to this. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Okay, If everything wasn't planned by a holy and loving God, there'd be enormous pressure on us when we evangelize. Now, there should be an impulse in us to go and tell. I'm, I'm not negating that. That's right and good. I'm actually going to continue to make that point. But there would be this kind of heavy, dark, discouraging sort of pressure on us when we evangelize if everything wasn't planned and ordained by a sovereign God. Because if we were inarticulate, it might result in a person missing their opportunity for salvation. What a crushing weight. Instead, The doctrine of election should give us far more hope about working with people. A reliance on God and a trust that he will save. But far more hope as we work with people. Why? Well, because no one is a hopeless case. From a human point of view, many look totally hard and lost, but since salvation is by God's election, we should treat anyone and everyone with hope since God calls the dead to life through us. The doctrine of election was actually the Apostle Paul's great motivator for mission. In Acts 18, verse nine, and the Lord, Jesus said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. See the great motivator for evangelism and mission for the apostle Paul was the knowledge that God had elect in that city. He merely had to go and to proclaim it to them and they would be saved. See, because God has elected many, listen, because God has elected many, we go and tell everybody. Because we have confidence that God involves us in reaching those he chose before the foundation of the world. Therefore, rather than an excuse not to spend our lives telling others about Jesus, God's absolute sovereignty is a motivation to evangelize. Here's what I need you to hear. The next person you pray for or share the gospel with may be one of God's elect, and you may be part of the way God has ordained to bring them to faith. Second, this text addresses humility when Paul writes, he chose us before the foundation of the world. See, we're not saved because we turned out to be more clever or more deserving than other people. Before God made the world, before the foundation of the world, God didn't look ahead and say, that Matt Schaunt's character, great guy, he's going to turn to me, therefore he's going to be saved. Like that, that, just, that doesn't make sense to me, right? The decision was made long before we were born, before God had even created the world. Meaning, if we had chosen God without him first choosing us, then we'd have reason to be proud of our own wisdom. But the emphasis of the the whole first paragraph of Ephesians, which is one just long run on sentence in the original language, he's just so excited. He just keeps rolling. And the the emphasis of the whole long first paragraph of Ephesians is on God's grace and God's love and God's will and God's purpose and God's choice. The reason why he chose his elect was in himself, in love, not in them, by their merit. All right, if you have a Bible with you, why don't you turn it to Romans chapter nine? What's happening in Romans nine is the apostle Paul has, has just said, I would be cursed if it would mean that my kinsmen, people from my nation, Israelites, Israel, if all of them could be saved, I would be cursed if that could happen. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that yes, there was this covenant with Abraham, but it's not by flesh, it's by promise. God made a covenant, a promise to Abraham, but then Abraham and Sarah are waiting around for a child and they decide, well, let's get Hagar involved in this. And then there's a son named Ishmael and all that happens. And and, And so Paul's saying, it's not by the flesh, it's by the promise. It's not by Abraham so much as it's, by Abraham, through Abraham, through Isaac, Isaac alone. And then he goes on to kind of expand on this idea. Verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told by God, The older will serve the younger, as it is written. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It's a difficult text, and I actually encourage you this week to read all of Romans 9. Because Paul anticipates what you're thinking in your head right now. Wait a minute, does that make God unjust? And so Paul, his next statement is like, So is God unjust? And then he goes, by no means, and he starts to explain himself. And then another question he anticipates that you have, and so he asks the question, and then he responds to that. It's a beautiful passage, it's a challenging one, but you might find it to be helpful. He goes on to say, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. This is what he said to Moses. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Then verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Simple question. Is there any reason for Jacob to boast? Is there any reason for Jacob to be filled with pride? The text has just told us before they were born and before they had done anything good or anything evil, God chose Jacob. The answer is no, not at all. Listen, if you experience the merciful compassion of God, the only response that makes any sense is to be filled with awe and praise, which is precisely Paul's point in Ephesians 1. Praise God. J.I. Packer was one of the great 20th century theologians and passed away this last year. He was a professor at Regent College in Vancouver for decades. He wrote a wonderful little book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Here's what he writes. As you look back, you take yourself to blame for your past blindness and indifference and obstinacy and evasiveness in the face of the gospel message, but you do not pat yourself on the back for having been mastered by the insistent Christ. You would never dream of dividing the credit for your salvation between God and yourself. You have never for one moment supposed that that the decisive contribution to your salvation was yours and not God's. You have never told God that while you are thankful for the means and opportunities of grace that he gave you, you realize that you have to thank not him, but yourself for the fact that you responded to his call. Your heart revolts at the very thought of talking to God in such terms. In fact, you thank him no less sincerely for the gift of faith and repentance than for the gift of Christ to trust and turn to. This is the way in which, since you became a Christian, your heart has always led you. You give God all the glory for all that your salvation involved. And you know that it would be blasphemy if you refuse to thank him for bringing you to faith. Thus, in the way you think of your conversion, you acknowledge the sovereignty of divine grace. And every other Christian in the world does the same. That's Bill's testimony. He said, I I think that God came looking for me. And then he quoted our text. God chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then Bill said, and I absolutely believe that to be true because I was not looking for God at all. But God kept at me and kept at me, kept calling me until I finally broke down and came to him. So you can take some issue with me over, over, over this sermon today. But don't you dare take issue with Bill, all right? Don't mess with Bill. Here's what we believe. God initiates, God directs, therefore God gets all glory. See, there's no room for pride because as J.I. Packer and more significantly as Paul say, it's all grace, it's all Jesus and that then produces humility in us. Third, it addresses holiness when Paul writes, he chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him. The point is crystal clear. Holiness is the very purpose of the elect. Not only that, the only evidence that someone is chosen by God is a fruitful, spirit-filled, and holy life. Now, In the Old Testament, we see God choose a special people to bless in order to be a blessing, Deuteronomy chapter 7, this is what God says to his people. Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Then he goes on in verse 11 to say, You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. See, God specifically explains to Israel that he didn't choose them because they outmatched the other nations in numbers or in any other way because they didn't. Why then? He chose them because he loved them. He blessed them to be a blessing by calling them to holiness. And the elect that Paul is speaking of in Ephesians 1 are the elect because they are to be holy and blameless. See, we should never think that election is an excuse for sin because those who are saved have been chosen to be accepted by God as holy and blameless on the basis of the holy and blameless life lived for us by Jesus. And then in gratitude for being saved, we're called to gradually become holy and blameless like him. Election is cause for evangelism, humility, and holiness. You know, we've done some good hard work here today. (laughs) And I'd like to communicate one more thing before our time is up. I, I realize that I've sort of probably just opened a big can of worms. Like we should be spending weeks on this alone. And so I don't mean to do you a disservice. I know I've spoken to this in John 6 and Exodus 9 and and previous sermons. And we'll speak to it again as it seems to come up in verses of Scripture. And where an emphasis seems to be on the response that we ought to have. We will preach with faithfulness those texts of Scripture. That will be our heart's desire. But just just one final thought. I want to communicate this before our time is up. You know, we can have good theology but be jerks about it, right? Um, we can agree on the big stuff, but then there are those who wanna make a big deal about little differences and, and sort of miss the forest for the trees in, in, in the midst of that. And sometimes we refer to you know, close-handed issues and open-handed issues. Right, close-handed issues that we are justified by grace through faith, right? we don't add our merits to that. Like, that's a close-handed issue, we believe that, that's critical, that's a, that's a, a key gospel component right there. And so we're kind of clenched fisted about that. But then there's these open-handed issues, like for example, eschatology, how we envision the end times and Christ's return and how that's all gonna go down. And that's sort of more open-handed issue here. We, we disagree more broadly on that and land in different places on stuff like that. I want to read a story to you about Charles Simeon and John Wesley who were two pillars in church history, godly men that ha- the fruit from their ministry continues to this day. S- Charles Simeon, Simeon Trust, maybe you've heard of that, or the Wesleyans, right? They've left a, a mark on history in the church. I wanna show you how they engaged with each other, even though they landed differently on this. Charles Simeon was quite a bit younger than John Wesley and so Charles Simeon went to visit John Wesley when Wesley was in old age. And I hope he didn't start out with this, but <laughs> eventually the conversation led to this. Sir, I understand that you were called an Arminian and I have been sometimes called a Calvinist and therefore I suppose we are to draw daggers. But before I consent to begin the combat with your permission, I will ask you a few questions. Sir, do you feel yourself a depraved creature, so depraved that you would never have thought of turning to God if God had not first put it in your heart? Yes, I do indeed, Wesley responded. And do you utterly despair of recommending yourself to God by anything you can do and look for salvation solely through the blood and righteousness of Christ? Yes, solely through Christ, Wesley said. But sir, supposing that you were at first saved by Christ, are you not somehow or other to save yourself afterwards by your own works? No, I must be saved by Christ from first to last, Wesley responded. "'Allowing then that you were first turned "'by the grace of God, "'are you not in some way or other "'to keep yourself by your own power?' "'No,' said Wesley. What then, are you, "'What then are you to be upheld every hour "'and every moment by God "'as much as an infant in its mother's arms?' "'Yes, altogether,' replied Wesley. "'And is all your hope in the grace and mercy of God "'to preserve you unto his heavenly kingdom?' "'Yes,' I have no hope but in him, said Wesley. And then Simeon responded, then, sir, with your leave, I will put away my dagger. For this is all my Calvinism. This is my election, my justification by faith, my final perseverance. It is in substance all that I hold. And as I hold it, and therefore, if you please, instead of searching out terms and phrases to be a ground of contention between us, We will cordially unite in those things wherein we agree. Central, I pray and I believe that we agree that salvation is all together, all of grace, and all to the glory of God, and that the only right response to it is praise, because Jesus saves. Let's pray. Jesus, I I simply want to thank you for salvation. Bringing your gracious, generous salvation to people who don't believe it. God, we love you and we thank you. I pray that as we study difficult texts like this, Lord, my hope is that Our love for you will deepen as our understanding of the lengths you went to save us grow. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you. We ask that you would continue to save those that we love around us. And as we go about this series from now till Easter, God, would you teach us? Would you grow us? Would you make us a more joyful and praise filled people? It's all for your glory it's all by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.